Simplify your federal agency's technology procurement with Connection Public Sector Solutions. Connection's dedicated account managers, commitment to exceptional customer service, and extensive catalog of federal contracts make IT purchases quick, easy, and affordable. Turn your challenges into opportunities and get rid of your technology pain points with Connection today. Learn more about what's possible with Connection Public Sector Solutions at connection.com slash fedcontracts. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money? Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Grammarly Premium. Get a one-month free trial of Grammarly Premium. All you need to do is click on the links down below, or you can visit my website for more information. Also, too, the show is sponsored by Amazon Music Unlimited. Get a get your free trial of Amazon Music Unlimited. All you need to do is visit my website to find out more. Uh, bugger. <laughs> No, it's all right. I, 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 the little red dot. <laughs> on the phone, I, I thought the battery was running down. It was just a little red dot saying that I got the speech stuck in. That's all. Okay. Oh, God. Welcome to the Stephen Shields Radio Show. I've got Patrick. How are you? Happy New Year. And a happy New Year to you, young Stephen. Uh, it's good to have you back on the show. How was your Christmas and New Year's Eve? Christmas? Fairly pleasant. Had a tidy do it. Nephew, New Year's Eve, uh, nothing. Went to bed. Nothing, so quiet. Yes, hyper quiet. You still volunteering for St Vincent de Paul's? Oh, very much so, yeah. How's the shop been? Busy? Quiet? Uh, a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Some days remarkably busy, other days very quiet. And we cannot work out why. <laughs> Someday people come, and it only takes two or three making big purchases, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been pretty quiet as well. Today, t- today was very quiet, but as I said, over the last week, we've had some very good days. No, that's, that's good. Good on you for that. Yeah. You know. And uh, so what, uh, you know, you're a mathematician, I remember. Um, did yeah. you study mathematics in university? Very much so, yes. I uh, did not a degree in maths and I have got the master's in maths. Wow. And what type Very... of ma- mathematics did you learn in your... Uh, I, I am in, in a very pure mathematics. I'm in the branch of my last study was in a very specialised branch of algebra called my ordered set theory. There might be a hundred people in the world who do it. Wow. <laughs> so if you Google my name, the word B I O R D E R E D by ordered, I will come up. Hang on, I'm gonna do it right now. Patrick Jordan by ordered. Hang on, how do I spell it? B B I O B I O, yeah. R. Hang on. 
D E R E D. By ordered. B I O R. Yeah. D E R. D E R. E D. E D. Let's see what comes up. By ordered set the mathematical object. That's that... what. Yep. That's it. This is Wikipedia. Yep. And you will then find that when you get to the Wikipedia. Yep. It'll talk about how where the name came from. How? Yeah. A mathematical object, structure, semi-group, yes. developed by K.S.S. Nambori Pad. Nambori Pad, yes. Uh, of two quasi orders yeah. by yeah. Patrick Jordan. While yes. a master student at University of Sydney introduced in 2002 the term... Bowset as an abbreviation of <laughs> my right. set. My one claim to fame. So it's your middle name, I... pa- Patrick Jordan, is it? Yeah, yeah. Oh dear, it's all. I mean, Wikipedia is not a, a peer-reviewed resource. I know, but that, that's what, but that entry is accurate. But it's coming up here like all these. Preliminaries and formal. Yeah, don't, don't, don't worry about that. They talk about pre-orders, etc., etc., etc. And it's a very technical branch of mathematics. Yeah. Uh, and what happened was that it's the kind of area of mathematics that I'm interested in because, in some ways, mm. it is simple. In some cases, in some ways, it's quite difficult. Mm. But uh, because it's a very new area in mathematics I didn't have to go away and learn billions of previous results mm. the other branches of re- related subject of algebra and mathematics you need about three or four years study of the subject yeah. before, before you get into anything new mm-hmm. and when I was doing it uh, David Easton who was my supervisor was had done some really very some groundbreaking work in this area, and basically what I did was I assembled all his results into a nice compact form. Hmm. Yeah, it looks yeah. very like vector space formal <laughs> definition. <laughs> oh yes, 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 yes. Uh, you, you need a background in mathematics to even read the uh, the Wikipedia article. <laughs> Preliminaries. And if, and if you go back to the general entry in the Google searches, yeah, and uh, you might find a couple of articles have been published. Mathsusid.edu. Is that possibly that one? Yeah, possibly an article been published that my name kind of turns up as well. In. Oh yeah, Patrick Jordan. Is your name Patrick Jordan or is? Yeah. Oh, wow. I thought it was just Patrick. <laughs> oh come on! I mean, is your name, is your name only Stephen? <laughs> no. <laughs> so you yes. did this by ordered sets of fundamental semi-groups with David Easdown and yeah. Brad Roberts, yeah. University of Sydney, two thousand six. You published this article, did yeah. you? Jesus Christ! <laughs> and that is when you don't want. I, I have trouble reading it myself now. Oh God. It's like you're coding. <laughs> and, 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 and in some kind of way, you can think of it as something like that. Mm. Because what algebra is about, 
That is, you have a few very, very simple rules and you see, what can I do using only these simple rules? Mm. And a semigrid has a very, very simple rule indeed, basically that uh, it behaves itself in, in, in a respectable kind of way. Mm. And uh, what happens is, is that these, these structures and basically it goes back to uh, it's a branch of algebra that deals with uh, in a way not describing but uh, talking about the way things behave so they call it this very simple rule which is associativity which is that if you uh, and think, this one I think of is uh, think of functions I think of functions in fact functions of functions and kind of batting them together and things like this. And it's quite a simple, as I said, it's a but very abstract of mathematics, but this particular sub-area was to do with a very specialised part of that area. There's quite a lot of work in semi-groups, but Boset theory is quite specialised. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Now... <laughs> yeah. Because I remember there was a someone was doing their PhD on a bark, and they were going into all these complicated algebra as well. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Ah, bark. It's the same branch of algebra. But bark actually, you would use what's called group theory, mm. which has one extra layer on it. Because Bach is about what are called transformations, about the way things can be shuffled around, reorganised. Mm-hmm. And the and group theory was designed actually to handle that originally. Mm-hmm. That, that was originally invented to handle a geometry problem. Mm-hmm. And so Bach, Bach can be analysed in terms of how do these things combine? Mm-hmm. How do these things work combine together to make something new? Hmm. Yes, I could understand Park in terms of algebra, algebra quickly group theory. Hmm. Interesting thought. I hadn't thought of that until you mentioned it. Yeah, I was going to ask because there is we we did uh, Roman numerals in uh, music theory. Yes. But I was going to ask you about the topic of algebra. Yeah. Do you need well, it to to use it or not, or is it just Theories or is it facts? Well, this what I do is very very abstract, very what they call pure mathematics. Yeah. Um, however, for instance, uh, what I did is related to the branch of mathematics they use in the, uh, string theory. Yeah. When they describe the universe, that is actually they use group theory. Uh, string theory is actually related to group theory. It's actually a branch of algebra. But what algebra is, is say, is uh, you have certain simple rules for combining things to make new things. Mm. Uh, like, if you remember at school, uh, maybe you're of the generation where we talked about the associative law and the distributive law and commutative. Remember that? Were they around in your time? Yeah. Right. That is 
algebraic, algebraic arithmetic. Yeah. That is the algebra behind arithmetic. Those rules, algebra studies what happens when you have only those rules mm. and you have things not necessarily meaning numbers, but things that can be put together according to simple rules. Mm. And see, something else that can be, uh, think of geometry. Yeah. Uh, most of the geometry you do at school is uh, you have you do things to figures, to shapes. You slide them, you reflect them, you make them bigger, you make them smaller. And all of these things obey the same kind of rules. So instead of looking at the geometry, you look at the rules rather than what's, and you say, where do these rules take me? They take you down some very fascinating and fun places. Mm. It really is. Basically, it's a game. Mm. You have these rules. If I have these rules and I use only these rules, what can I say? Mm. In fact, they've reached the stage now where they can program computers mm. to do new algebra. Mm. Uh, well I'm just looking on um, Google on uh, yes. Cambridge.org. Uh, yeah. It's coming up with these by-ordered sets, yeah. subsets <laughs> of independents of semi-groups. That's it, yeah, that's that, that it, yes. Now, my que like question for you is to be a mathematician, how do you become a mathematician? Do you have to have a mathematical brain or...? Uh... I don't know how I became a mathematician. Yeah. I, I always, I think you need to have an emphasis, but there are so many different types of mathematics. Yeah. And I, my special, and this is something I was particularly to do with this, these, this kind of thing because it was something that I could carry around the ideas in my head. Mm. Uh, and basically mathematics, to be a mathematician, I think more than anything, you'd be able to need to see the underlying structure, the underlying patterns behind how things work. Mm. Instead of looking at the, the top level of the working, you're, you're looking at the, the one level underneath. Mm. So uh, it helps to be good at arithmetic, but you don't have to be. Yeah. Now, sure, if the, to be a mathematician, you don't necessarily... Uh, what, we, what you study at school uh, is all the preliminaries you need to study to be able to start doing mathematics. Mm. That's one of the troubles with doing maths at school is that you never actually get anywhere doing anything near view. Yeah, I used to fall asleep and draw pictures on my, yeah. <laughs> on my work. Yeah. Well, because it's like a... Like, actually, what most of you do at school, mm. it is not going to directly affect you in life. I mean, when you leave school, it's useful to have a really good understanding of number and how numbers work. Because if you understand that, then a lot of what goes around around you, you can understand. Mm. Uh, that's, that, that's me, I think, the university, being understand, it's like being able to read and, be able to, and understand what you're Hike the trail? Check. Order takeout? Check. Schedule heart checkup? Done. We've all adapted to a new way of living. 
Keep your health care on schedule with Johns Hopkins Medicine, where your health and safety are our highest priorities. We're ready to care for you through virtual and in-person visits across Maryland and the greater Washington region. Your health, our experts, safely caring for you. Schedule your care now. Learn more at hopkinsmedicine.org forward slash safe. Great. It's not supposed to be able to read English. It's useful to be able to read numbers. Just as it's really valuable to be able to read work of art. Mm. But there are all these type of things enable you to have a better life, to understand what's going on better. Mm. But after that, somewhere along the line, you just have to pick up the interest in doing it. Mm. Find that you can do it and, and enjoy that particular kind of mental challenge. Mm. That's what it's about. That's what it's about giving you, I do it because it gives me mental challenges. Mm. Mm. And uh, I really don't know. There, I think that there are certain, whatever they might say otherwise, certain, if not natural skills, skills that you have somehow picked up from the earliest days. Mm. I think you need to have been exposed to this mathematical kind of thinking mm. from the beginning mm. in order to, for your mind, when you start meeting it, to be able to actually carry on and do it. Mm. So a lot of people get burnt out from instant mathematics by the time they're about seven or eight. And I do mean like that, because after when you think of all the really great sportsmen, most of them started quite young. Yeah. And I suppose that's a better example. I mean, think not all sportsmen are the greatest athletes. No, no. You know, I mean, think about it, say, you know, uh, but they have somehow taken this particular challenge, this physical challenge, mm. and they've developed their body to that extent. Well, to become a mathematician, the same thing, somewhere along the line, something had to have caught your fancy and said, oh, this is interesting. And I'll do it. I mean, think about your music. Mm. Um, you're a fairly competent musician from what I pick up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see in many ways uh, you're certainly more competent than I am. Mm-hmm. And you certainly have more music theory than I do, although I have some very, again, I would probably have a better abstract theory of music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I can actually give you give you the Pythagoras on music. Yeah. But, and I can actually work out most of the uh, the formal theory of music from from first principles mm. because it's mathematical. Mm, it is. Uh, but at the same time, when you went into, when you when you did your music, you go to music, you have gone down and developed the artistic talent. So mm-hmm. you've got your artistic abilities in music, and I developed my, and I could say it's almost an artistic value in mathematics. I do it because I find it produces a product that I find interesting and in some ways beautiful. Mm. So in many ways, to me, it is an art as much as science. As much as a science. Mm. You know, I spent, it's funny, there was one little problem I bet when I was doing one of my degrees. Yeah. And it needed the way in the back of my brain. And ten years later, 
literally 10 years, I woke up in the middle of the night and said, oh, that's the answer. Oh, you had one of those dreams and you got up. It was not quite a dream. I was consciously <laughs> thinking, but it was delayed. And I was like, constantly think about it. And I suddenly had that insight. And I said, and this is, gee, I wish I'd thought about that at the time because it was so, it was so, such a clean, such a, an elegant mm. solution. What's really, this? Um... I, 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 did, I did something that was really heavy and clunky. Mm. And then another fellow with the same class took what I did and said, aha, and where I did something really heavy and clunky, he said, oh, let's turn it around. He just, he had insight that I didn't have. And he then did a very elegant solution to something that I had a clunky solution. Mm. But then what I did was I created, I found 10 years later an absolutely, it was gobsmacking because it actually solved more than the problem I was trying to solve, it gave an absolute perfect answer to something that meant that, that a whole section, a whole section of mathematics suddenly became absolutely presentable. And the thing is, other people have done it. Mm. So it's not, it wasn't new or anything, but it just struck me as being an absolutely wonderful result. What's this, the construction for an arbitrary bosset? <laughs> the construction of an arbitrary bosset? Yes, I'll boast it. <laughs> I'm looking at. <laughs> I'm, look, well, um, I'm reading your article down. It's got this weird stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, the, well, the thing is, uh, a boset is algebra. Let's get what algebra. Algebra is about <laughs> if you have a set of symbols you can write on the paper, mm. usually they're letters, and you then have. Another set of symbols that you use to combine, yeah, another set of things, we'll call it multiplication, and you can combine those two letters, those two values, to create a new value. Mm. Algebra is you have to have rules about how you can combine things. Mm. Now, the rules for an arbitrary boset are far from simple. Uh, they, they involve two, let's see if I can put the article, they involve two pre-orders, over the impotence, over mm. impotent values. Mm. And already I can see your mind saying, what is he talking about? <laughs> mm. uh, what happens is that the rule says that if you have these, this any value and you square it, it stays the same. Mm. Now, in the numbers we know, there are only two impotence, namely one and zero. Mm. But there are actually mathematical structures where everything is idempotent. Mm. Anyway, so you have two, you have structures where you have idempotence, and then if two idempotents multiply to make a third idempotent, and if the two, if one of those products mm. is one of the two starting ones, then we start talking about. Then we are starting starting to talk about uh, bosets. Mm. But after that, it gets quite complicated because I can't, I can't remember. There, there are a set of five axioms. Mm. It's and uh, one of the problems is is that the uh, the way that I did it was that David Easdale he used an arrow used arrows to describe them and uh, used arrows with pointy heads and rounded and rounded tails 
and uh, by using heads and tails on the arrows, you could say something rather than using symbols to uh, to show their relationship. Mm. And, it, and basically said two, two idempotents are related in a certain way, A, B, if A, B equals A. Then if A, B equals A, then B, A uh, and B are related in a particular way as well. Mm. Basically, as I said, it's complicated and very hard to describe without a blackboard and <laughs> <laughs> things like this. The good old blackboard days with the chalk. Well, no, well you know what I mean. That'll, that's something to write on. <laughs> Ah, that's that's some good telling you got to be able to work that stuff out. Have you ever touched about on uh, calculus? Yes, uh, calculus was very big in the school curriculum. Yeah, and I also did quite a bit of um, calculus work uh, in my the earlier part of my university degree. Mm because uh, it was a kind of essential part of the course. Mm. However, uh, I just want to remember, I've just got another message I, want, I need to answer. answer. Um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to do three things at once. <laughs> three things got at you. once. Didn't um, Leonardo da Vinci use like a lot of mathematics in his art? Yes, yeah, yeah, Leonardo da Vinci used mathematical thinking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, and it's hard to say to, to say to the extent to which he actually consciously used formal mathematics in developing his art. Mm. Or because he was a brilliant mathematician, and Leonardo da Vinci was a brilliant mathematician, uh, his mind, when he was doing his art, then tended to think in a structured mathematical way. Mm -hmm. I'm more inclined to believe the latter. Mm. Because his art is too creative mm. to be just like, getting back to the early ones, dark. Yeah. See, see, Bach can be analysed mathematically, 
as you speak, as we as you mentioned earlier, using algebra. Mm. But Bach wrote because it felt right, it sounded right. Mm. He might have had subconscious uh, thinking about, I will follow this kind of pattern. But considering that the time when Bach was writing, the mathematics that would be used to analyse it had not been fully developed. Mm. He was not using the formal mathematics to do it. That's what the mathematics is very often can be used to analyse things that already exist. Mm. Uh, when you think about it, most of nature is analysed and explained using mathematics. That's what science basically is, using mathematics to explain nature. Mm. Uh, because <laughs> just like bank of something was mingled in a big way. Aha, uh-huh, right. <laughs> just like just like messages. Uh, but because our kind of sits in a freer part of the, the of the mind, some art can be explained mathematically. Mm. And some not. But after all, when you think about it, uh, when Bach composed the, uh, the world, his worst work on the world tempered clavier, he was using the, his basic uh, constructional element was a 12th root of 2. Mm. He did not sit down and calculate the 12th root of 2. Mm. He said you do a straight line mm-hmm. across the chords and said, aha, these give very good approximations mm. to the true ratios of the true things. So Bach, in fact, observed a very close approximation and worked with that. And that's how we have the, the whole current modern music theory. Mm. Because Bach had a an artistic and simultaneously artistic and mathematical insight. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Bach because I, I think he lived during the Black Plague, did he? Uh, that, uh, I lose track of exact dates. Leonardo da Vinci, I think, lived during the Black Plague. Uh, Black well, Black Bach, Bach was a hell of a lot later than that. No, Bach, no, Bach, no, Bach is quite a lot later. Bach, Bach lived in troubled times, but not, not those times. Hmm. Alleg- Hikes a trail? Check. Order takeout? Check. Schedule heart checkup? Done. We've all adapted to a new way of living. Keep your health care on schedule with Johns Hopkins Medicine, where your health and safety are our highest priorities. We're ready to care for you through virtual and in-person visits across Maryland and the greater Washington region. Your health, our experts, safely caring for you. Schedule your care now. Learn more at hopkinsmedicine.org forward slash safe. Hike the trail? Check. Order takeout? Check. Schedule heart checkup? Done. We've all adapted to a new way of living. Keep your health care on schedule with Johns Hopkins Medicine, where your health and safety are our highest priorities. We're ready to care for you through virtual and in-person visits across Maryland and the greater Washington region. 
Your health. Our experts. Safely caring for you. Schedule your care now. Learn more at hopkinsmedicine.org forward slash safe. Alexander the Great lived during the Black Death. <laughs> Alexander the Great? Well, Alexander Ale- the Great lived 300 BC. Did he? Oh, <laughs> wrong one. Yeah, yeah. Hang on. Jesus, <laughs> bark. It's one of those days, Patrick. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit um, sloppy with my dates too, unfortunately. So, yeah. um... Well, bark... Uh, died in he was says well Wikipedia he was born in sixteen eighty five and died in seventeen fifty. Yes, uh sixteen eighty five, sixteen fifty, the the biggest uh outbreak of the plague yeah. finished around sixteen sixty. Yeah. Because uh the Great Fire of London. Yes. Uh was what, sixteen sixty six? Don't quote me on that, but somewhere around there, mm. uh, in fact, did a lot to clean up the to clean up the remnants of the plague. Apparently, mm. it just burnt out all those rats and things. Mm. Well, I was doing a, a course on the Great Courses Plus about the Great Fire of sixteen sixty six, and apparently, it started in a bakery. Yeah, pudding bake. That's really weird. No, think about it. Hmm. We're talking London, 19, I'm sorry, 1666. Yeah. Think of how the bakery would have been built. Hmm. Think what a bakery has to have in those days to break the bread. Hmm. And think of what the buildings around it were built of. Hmm. But don't forget the, the, the principal structural material at that time was wood. Buildings were mainly built out of wood. Yep. Uh, they, they, a lot of wattle and daub, which is clay strapped over thin wreaths of wood, but nevertheless, the structures were essentially wood. Hmm. A lot of... There was, there was a lot of... Um, straw being used for insulation and underfoot protection and things mm. and a bakery is a place with a big fire mm-hmm. so many in fact to me I would have been surprised if it started places else mm. Mm. Yeah, so at, the, at the great fire of London mm. Wow. Yeah. Yes. So, like I said, but getting back to the mathematics and music, I mean, the first person to apply really applied mathematics was Pythagoras, mm. who developed the whole concept of the interval as we know it. Mm-hmm. That goes one goes right, right, go back, and he basically, you know, said, "Ah, that we as Greeks in our music." find that, oh, the music we like is where the frequencies are in simple ratios to each other. Mm. And again, it's one of these things that if you think hard about, what it means is that if they're in simple ratios to each other, they come back in step with each other eventually. Mm. So when you move from one to another, you're moving where there's a where the 
two days of COD, if they are not an essential ratio, then you, the one sound would jar against the next one in terms that would be an interference. Mm. So one, one note died would actually physically interfere with it. Anyway, I'm not sure about that. Mm. That's just, no, I'm not thinking aloud on that. Mm-hmm. But certainly he kind of invests that whole idea of interval as we understand it. Mm. And then Bach picked up and refined that idea with a, should I say, an artistic mathematical insight. It was both. Mm. Yeah, so, well, Bach did, you know, used a lot of complicated, complicated mathematical concepts, I guess. Uh, as I said, surprisingly not. Mm-hmm. It really was. Um, surprisingly, the biggest thing that he did was one brilliant, simple mathematical concept. I'd say the square root of 12, which sounds like a strange number, but nevertheless, basically he said, hey, if I divide 12 even steps... Mm-hmm. which is the world tempering mm-hmm. as multiples mm. of length, then by choosing the right ones of those, I can get very close approximations. And it was done by ear. I mean, he, he kind of... It's on the back... It, uh, it gets very good at close approximations to the true intervals that Pythagoras described. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... As I said, it was a brilliantly... The mathematics actually is quite simple, but surprisingly successful. Mm. Uh, as I said, it's, and it's in the name, the will tempering. Because mm. he, actually, he actually balanced them all out. Mm. You're sure. Do you think he knew what he was doing mathematic-wise? And Leonardo oh, certainly, da Vinci? Certainly, uh, Bach certainly was, a, was competent mathematically, yes. Mm. He certainly was thinking... As I said, he was thinking... On that boundary between mathematics and art... Yeah. Uh, he was applying his mathematics to his art. Or applying his art to his mathematics. I'm not sure which way around Probably the first, probably playing a mathematics to his art. But he was thinking as an artist, mm-hmm. using mathematics rather than making art. To me, Bach is first and foremost an artist. Mm. You see, Leonardo da Vinci was designing all these helicopters, right? Years yeah. and years before they got built. Yes, they wouldn't have necessarily have worked. Yeah. Uh, because uh, <laughs> a couple of factors that weren't solved until the 20th century. Mm. Uh, Russell by the name of Sikorsky mm. had the uh, the great the great idea. Mm. Uh, the wrong button. I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to multitask. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, like, 
like, like, so what you're saying, his his inventions wouldn't work today. They wouldn't have worked ever. Wow. Interesting. Very interesting that, uh, yeah. He was such a clever artist. Oh, yeah, 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 this is it. I mean, people try to uh, people uh, He was, was an artist, but again, he was first of all, he was first of all as an artist. Mm. But he was, oh, he was in that classic meaning of the word, a Renaissance man. He looked, he thought about everything. Mm. Uh, and because there were no hard rules then mm. about what you are supposed to study and what you are supposed to be doing, he tried everything. Yeah. And things like the helicopters. His idea of having screws thrusting through the air, and you look at his models, uh, the idea was excellent, mm -hmm. but the actual, uh, the physics of the, the, the way, the, the amount of lift he could have obtained from what he was trying to do compared to the weight. Yeah. Things like this would have rendered them not as successful as we people imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, there are even little things like, you know, I can't recall seeing whether he had a, a counter up, a counter propeller to stop the whole thing spinning around. Some of the, some of the, some, I was missing some of the necessary features mm. to actually make it work. Mm. But at the same time, the very fact that he had the idea of creating an air screw is pretty blooming incredible in its own right. Mm -hmm. So I would, give, I would give him a lot. He was a genius. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he's one of the... Uh, he, he's one of the, uh, the genuinely... Uh, genius type genius is one of those genuinely almost unbelievably uh, as I said broadly gifted men the other thing was that at the time lots of things were being thought about from first principles, they're going back, things were starting again, people were starting to think again in, in, in a new way about the world, mm. which meant as I, there, were, there were no rules, pre-existing rules laid down mm. about where the boundaries of your knowledge were. And also, you, you're, you're, you're making it up, almost making it up, you're, you're, you're thinking, you're, your stuff was new. Mm. So it was able to look across so many different branches of study because uh, see, nowadays if you want to study engineering for instance and he was an engineer mm. uh, the, the, all the engineering that Leonardo did in his life would probably 
to be studied no more than the first year of an engineering course nowadays. Mm. Uh, seriously. And then, to make things work better and better and finer and finer, <laughs> uh, you would have to study more and more specialised and you focus in closer and closer on a smaller and smaller area of study, you learn more and more about how one kind of thing works. Mm-hmm. Because what a modern engineer is trying to do isn't really make something work, mm. but make it work in the most efficient, the lightest, the cheapest, the strongest, the most efficient or the whatever criteria you want to weigh. But think about motor cars. Mm-hmm. As I was growing up, it was expected that everybody was able to look under their bonnet and fix their engine. Are you serious? You didn't rely on a mechanic? Didn't have to. So you could fix your own engine? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Not, not actually, well, actually, I never got around to it. Yes, yes. It was, and, and it was expected that as one of these skills, kind of expectation that people have a good thing. Because the cars were quite simple mechanical devices. Yep. But nowadays, uh, courtesy of highly specialised knowledges, mm. uh, engine management is all done in, in a little black box. Mm. Uh, in, as I was growing up, it was all done by, uh, you know, things like engine type, if you think about that. Mm. It, it, uh, it was done mechanically, and you had the cans were adjusted by twisting it by simply shifting a, a cog. Mm. It, it was done mechanically, mm. and the timing of the ignition again was done mechanically. Mm. It, was simple, it was very simple, very direct mechanical link, and with a physical link, it was visible and therefore adjustable. Mm. Nowadays, the controls for this are all in the black box. Yeah, well, <clears throat> a lot of cars now are gone electronic. Yeah. So I'm saying, yes. Our mechanic reckons he's got 10 years left in the industry before it's all gone electronic. Well, as I said, most cars nowadays, yeah. if you have a problem, they plug it into, they plug your box into their box and it says here is your problem. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. Uh, that's happened between my last two cars. Nowadays, uh, simple as that. Mm. And uh, it simultaneously means it's less likely to go wrong, but if it does go wrong, <laughs> Well, you look at it like this, Patrick, you, you have a Ferrari, you can only yeah. go to a Ferrari dealer to fix it, yeah. you can only use Ferrari tires and... Yeah, well that's another, again, that's bit my early comment about how engineers work. Yeah. Because with the Ferrari, use Ferrari tires, or the, they're, they're appropriate tires, because those tires can be relied on to behave in a certain way, have a certain amount of bounce, a certain amount of stiffness, mm. a certain amount of flexion, 
so that the suspension of the Ferrari matches what the tyres are going to do. Mm. They're part of the same balance system. Mm. Again, when I was growing up, you just banged a pair of tyres on and the car went bumpity bumpity bump. Nowadays, cars don't get bumpity bumpity bump. Mm. Even though the basic car is, is smooth. Well, you remember the old days of cars. I used to hear that they never had air conditioning. <laughs> what about the old day cars? Like the old Tiranas? What about the old Tiranas? My... Okay, the uh, the car I bought 20 years ago had air conditioning, yes. Yeah. But neither of my first three cars, none of my first three cars had air conditioning. Oh, God. You had perfectly good way of making it cool. You had the <laughs> window down. Oh, man, what about on a 40-degree day? Or the old pre-war Ford. Oh, God. Then, this, this, this had a wonderful feature. Mm. In the middle of the dashboard, there was a lever. Mm-hmm. You pushed that lever forward, and it opened a scuttle in the bonnet that left free, that left last and fresh air in straight, straight in the middle of the car. Mm. There's a hole in the bonnet straight into the body of the car. Mm. Just, just in front of the windscreen. Mm. And this scoop air straight into the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the height of modernity when it was made in 1937. Mm. That, was, no, that was a, a new feature. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, no, no, no. Uh, this is it. We forget just how... Much technology has changed in our lives. Mm. How much things that we now think of as fairly normal mm. weren't. Mm. But I mean, think of what I'm doing right now using a uh, microwave radio, microwave radio waves mm-hmm. through a localized cellular uh, tower structure. Mm. using a code-shifting frequency alteration Mm. to ensure privacy Mm -hmm. and uh, to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, After all, 20 years ago, if I wanted to make a phone call, it was a strictly analogue system. I would pick up the phone. I would speak into the mouthpiece. That would be converted into a simple waveform, which would then be transmitted directly and unedited and unmediated down the wire. Mm-hmm. Uh, totally different. Mm. And... Uh, Little things like that. When this works, because of the way it works, it works with absolute clarity. Mm-hmm. So this, the, the, the system we are working now either works or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Because, again, the way it, it is structured. Mm. That's it. Okay. Like engineering, for instance, like um, you've got Lamborghini, 
Maserati. They so all... You've got all, these, you've got all these French cars. They're French cars. Yeah. But let's not forget that the little hybrid I drive now mm. is probably, in every sense you can think of, a mechanical superior car yeah. to a Ferrari of 20 years ago. What what hybrid? You got a Toyota? Yeah, the small the smallest Toyota. Yeah, they. But good. nowadays, nowadays you can buy an off-the-shelf ordinary car. Yeah. That would be in all senses mechanically superior to what were the French cars of 20, 30 years ago. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you ever watched uh, that talk. Yeah, the, the BBC talk, the show talk. Ah, uh, not the talk. Uh, what is it? Ah, uh, uh, and people are going to be getting the supercar, the McLaren F1, F2, mm. sorry, of 20 years ago, and they're bombs. Mm. Now, I mean, they're clunky. They don't work. They're like a, not mi- because, a million. Not because they're worn out, because basically they were. They were the best engineering of their time, and that engineering is now totally dated. But this, see, the McLaren F1, it's like a million dollars. That, that, that is the current version of it. But, but the earlier, you, 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 you get one of the first ones of them. Yeah. You get, you get a car that costs... These, these cars don't hold their value in this way of putting it. Yeah. Because... Very often, these cars are used to develop the technology mm. that then just becomes part of every other car. Mm. Mm. Let's say with almost everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a technology is developed for a, a niche that mm. works and it gets out into the world. Mm. I mean, you think about the brakes on the modern car. Mm-hmm. You think about the car, I would mention that. Mm. I mean, I often remember the first set of radial tyres I bought. You would never know what a, what a tyre was that wasn't radial. You would, a cross-by tyre would mean nothing to you because they're simply just not made anymore. Yeah. But 40 years ago, they were the default tyre mm. because they were easier to make. Mm. But over the time, they worked out that, hey, they work better. Mm. I mean, how many cars nowadays have four drum brakes? Not many. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, they're ABS brakes now. Yeah, you have ABS, yeah, and most cars have, most cars have a fleet disc on the front. Mm. Uh, they'll have ABS, they'll have uh, brake assist, mm. they'll have all sorts of things. Mm. Uh, and a lot of these things were things found in ultra expensive cars 30 years ago. Mm. It just takes time to happen. I mean, you probably wouldn't even know that once upon a time, you want to put the window down the car, you turn the handle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now they've got the uh, child proof locker on them now. Yes, but once upon a time, they put the window down the car, you turned it off. Yeah. Nowadays, you press a button. <laughs> uh, and things like this. 
Også når man bare... Fuck it, yeah. I remember when the, uh, the Mercedes back in 1971 had central locking. I think it did. It certainly had automatic windows. Mm. That was 1971. It took a long time for the thing like that to up in ordinary cars. Mm. Of course, you know, like, something is put onto a fancy car or put into a fancy system first. Mm. It works, and then they work out ways of making it cheaper. Mm. Which is really what I said, what engineers are spending all their time trying to do. Mm-hmm. Engineers are always improving technology. That well. is, that's what engineering is trying to do. Yeah, that is why now, if you're way back to where we started on this, Leonardo da Vinci would have trouble now. Because engineers are now looking at improving particular, very narrow focus items mm. rather than looking at big pictures. Mm. Leonardo was at the time in engineering was becoming a science because it always existed. Uh, there was always engineering. Mm. Uh, the Romans were great engineers. Mm-hmm. But a lot of engineering was practical. Mm. They they knew what worked, mm. so they kept on doing it. Mm-hmm. And every so often, somebody would try something new. Mm-hmm. And around a little earlier than Leonardo, for instance, they suddenly worked out that they could hold roofs, hold walls up, mm-hmm. uh, without necessarily holding the whole wall up, as it were. They'll they'll cut down weight. Mm. And they started inventing like the flying buttons. They worked out that hey, our loads were transferred. They worked out different ways of building arches and things. Mm. And uh, all of a sudden, they're able to build building twice as high. Mm. Uh, however, this was generally done practically somebody experimenting. Yeah. Whereas. The, the, mod, the more modern engineer is more likely to develop a mathematical model and say, hey, the mathematics is right, now let's see whether it works in the real world rather than the other way around. Mm. Mm. True. So, uh, so, you know, so Leonardo would probably have trouble because his engineer, in his view, mm. was still the broad brush view. So his idea, getting back to the helicopter again, his idea of the helicopter was the idea of an air screw. Mm. However, it, takes, it took a modern engineer to actually build an air screw that actually worked. Mm. See, small models, uh, on this scale, people have made flying models. In fact, uh, Vinci made small flying models. Little things that flew. Mm. Because among other things, you want to have some form of energy. So that's why you have to have a rubber, then have a spring or something wound up and have something under tension. Mm. To uh, and, he, and he had and he had very good elastics in those days. Mm. So I think like this, all sorts of things like uh, we we forget that we have to remember that 
we have access to materials that have been developed you know, over thousands of years, mm-hmm. but many of which have only been developed in the last hundred years, mm-hmm. last fifty years, last two hundred years. I mean, good quality rubber has only been around one hundred six hundred seventy years. Mm-hmm. Things like that. We think of rubber as, yeah. but it took a couple of very clever men, or actually a bloke making accidental discoveries often happen to these things to make rubber actually usable. Mm. So things like this. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, uh, uh, you know, NASA and the, um, yeah, what's the Russian... Space, eh? is that right? Russian? I can't, I can't remember what they're right. I'm not sure what the Russian space agency is called. I wanted to talk about this engineering with, um, you know, the old uh, space capsules. Now, did they ever have an ejection seat? Because what happens if something goes wrong? Can astronauts actually eject? Uh, most of them don't, because they're too small. So what, what happens if something goes wrong? Uh, in some cases... The whole capsule would be ejected. Yeah, that's what I mean. They, but NASA... The capsule, the, 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 the capsule, the National Space Capsule... Yeah. ...is the survival capsule. Yeah. Uh, it is the actual survival component. This, this is what kept them alive. Yeah. Um... Uh, Whether you're having a not moving off the couch while you watch the game kind of day or a no time between conference calls kind of day, it can still be a delicious Dunkin' kind of day. And with Dunkin' now available on DoorDash, it's easier than ever to get your faves brought right to your door. So if you're looking for coffees, donuts, and breakfast sandwiches in the morning, craving some afternoon snack and bacon, or in need of Dunkin' refreshers for a PM pick-me-up, we've got you covered. Order now and get your faves brought to your door through Grubhub, Uber Eats, and DoorDash. Price and participation may vary. Exclusions apply. America runs on Duncan. Hike the trail? Check. Order takeout? Check. Schedule heart checkup? Done. We've all adapted to a new way of living. Keep your health care on schedule with Johns Hopkins Medicine, where your health and safety are our highest priorities. We're ready to care for you through virtual and in-person visits across Maryland and the greater Washington region. Your health, our experts, safely caring for you. Schedule your care now. Learn more at hopkinsmedicine.org forward slash safe. The itself was the fail site. Mm. There, were very, there were very, very few accidents involving space capsules as such. Mm. Uh, the more complicated things like the, the endeavor, the, oh, the space shuttle. Uh, they are a much more complex structure, mm. and they actually did fail more frequently. Yeah, and well, they had a couple of disasters, space shuttle Well, there was one, I think it was in 2003, a space shuttle just blew up in the air. There was, a, there, was a, there was one that blew up on launching. Yeah. And there was one that, uh, one that burned out on re-entry. So how come... Because I know... I think the so- uh, the Russia the Soviets were experimenting with ejection seats too, because they got the Soyuz. Yeah, that's oh, it. I mean, there, there were some efforts made, and I believe that some of the uh, the bigger units 
yeah. didn't have ejection seats. Because if one of those tumbles is, if you have an ejection seat, ejection seat, you have to have a hatch to get out of. Yeah. And once you build a hatch that you can eject through, you're building a weak spot. Yeah. Into the thing that has to be particularly strong. Yeah. See, with an aircraft ejection seat, yeah. they just blow the roof off. Yeah. If you think about that, but that first, the first thing they do is blow the canopy off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Australian, the, the aircraft, the bomber Australian with the F-111 didn't have ejection seats. The F-111? No. Oh. What happened was the entire cockpit yeah. was the safety capsule. The parachutes were attached to the cockpit. Oh, wow. So you say they landed in land the cockpit at all, apparently. Mm. See, if if a fighter pilot's going to eject, yeah. Now, they never ever show footage of what happens, but I hear it's not very good for the human body. Well, uh, there are a couple of nasty things that happen. Yeah. Depending on the design of the seat. Mm. First of all, you're given a hell of a kick up your tail. Yeah. Because what happens is they've got to throw. You've got to be that's well clear of the plane. Mm. Secondly, the moment you leave the plane, this plane's flying pretty fast. Mm. So you're, you're, you're hit in the face by a wham, bam, thank you, bam, of mm. the air you're flying through. Mm. So, yes, it's not very pleasant. Do fight, uh, fighter pilots actually get trained to <coughs> use the ejection seat? Oh, I presume yes. I mean, I've never actually <laughs> had a serious thought about that. Mm. But I would assume so, yes. Because when but, the prob- but the problem is, is that the actual ejection, mm. uh, as I said, when you're flying, it's difficult to eject to and take it on the ground anyway. Mm. Because the thing like the fact that the plane is flying through the air at speed. Yeah. Not necessarily level. I think like this. And also then, so, but they certainly worked. Mm. And in most cases, it is certainly preferable to the alternative. Which well, is going down with the flags. Well, in World War Two and in World War One, they just used to get on the wing and jump out. Oh yes, well I mean don't forget that the uh, most of the planes in World War One, those biplanes, yeah, were flying not faster, not much faster than 100 kilometres an hour. Mm. In fact. Uh, it's funny, I was just looking at the paper yesterday, one of the, online, and, uh, and I talked about one of these old photos of, from between the wars mm. of two cha- people standing on top of the wing of a plane. Mm-hmm. People walked along those things. People actually walked along the wings of the planes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Crazy. Well, it wasn't easy, but they did. Crazy. What's in fact, there are quite a lot. I mean, you had you had dancing girls on the wings of planes. Mm-hmm. Well, with no <laughs> with no parachute. Of course not. Well, they're dancing girls. That look like dancing girls. So what happens if one falls off? Get cheese. <laughs> uh, they were actually strapped on. They were actually tied on. Oh. But equally, the planes were because of the way the planes are flying. In fact, they, they weren't flying very fast. Yeah. If you look at them, they have a lot of wing for the size, for the weight and size of the plane. Mm. That's why they're often biplanes. 
Mm. See, the sides of those wings, there's a lot of wing. World War One biplanes pilots never wore oxygen. It was uh, started, wasn't it? World War Two, they were flying. Oh yes, higher. again because again those planes simply couldn't fly that high anyway. Yeah. Because to fly high enough to need oxygen. Yeah. First of all, let's not forget your engine also needs oxygen. No, I didn't know that. Think about it. the engine burns petrol. Mm. So the engine doesn't doesn't need added oxygen, but the the needs air. Mm. There's enough air to keep the engine going. Yeah. So it was uh, not until they started turbo- supercharging the en- engines mm. were they able to, the, the pumping air in, mm. were they able to fly in the highly thin air. Mm. And then when they started getting into, but there were pilots who blacked out when they climbed too high for lack of oxygen, yes. Mm. Uh, Things like that. So, so it's, again, you have to see the thing is you are when you're thinking of the World War plane, you're still thinking of being somehow like a modern plane, and in, the only way they're like a modern plane is that they flew. Mm. They flew slow. They didn't fly very high because they were flying slow. Mm-hmm. They flew high enough. Mm. Mm. So the idea of oxygen, magnesium, wasn't. Uh, I mean, nowadays, the altitudes we fly at, we all need oxygen. Mm. What about when the Vietnam War happened? They started having fighter jets. I've well, had fighter jets long before that. Yeah. Let's see. I wanted to talk about like okay, say you're a pilot, you have to eject. Mm-hmm. Can it do, like, a lot of damage to your body? Well, as I said, the first thing is, is that basically they explode a small bomb under you. Yeah. It's a, a little rocket booster they have under you. Mm. So you're subjected to four, five, six, seven G, apparently. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Only, only, only for a very brief period of time. Mm. But basically, you're just, as I said... You're given a mass kick up the tail. Mm-hmm. Because, the pl- look, don't forget, before anything else happens, the seat that you are sitting on has to be clear of the aircraft. Yeah. And when you're flying along, directly behind you, there's this bloody great thing called the tail. Yeah. If you don't go flip high enough, there's every chance you're going to be cut in half by the tail. Yeah. So that's why they invented it. That's why they had to fire the clear, yes. You see, like a space shuttle in the Columbia accident, how come space shuttles don't have an ejection? I don't know. Uh, like... because, because, because to have an ejection seat, you have to have a hatch. Yeah. And because there are... The space shuttle is actually a shirt sleeve environment. Yeah. The space shuttle is but was flown in the same way that a high-flying aircraft is flown. Yeah. The crew are actually in shirt sleeves. Yeah. Because it's a, it's, they're in a controlled environment. Mm. The whole space shuttle is their capsule. Well, what about... And, uh, yeah. So, so uh, and the point is, because of the speeds they're operating, and speed of these failures, uh, Certainly, 
an ejection on launch is be worth doing. I think they were actually talking about ejection for launch failure. Yeah. Re-entry failure. Don't forget the reason why re-entry failure happened was this aircraft was travelling too fast and it burnt up. If you tried to eject from the thing at the speed it was travelling, the impact of the air on you when you left the shuttle, you're travelling, they were travelling at, you know, a thousand plus kilometres an hour. Yeah. Uh, you imagine hitting, having wind like that hitting you. Yeah. And squished. Yeah. So an ejection on re-entry probably wouldn't work. But I think at one stage they were certainly talking about uh, an ejection. I know the Russians were talking about an ejection for failure at the launch phase. Yeah. But the launch phase is really the most dangerous and when you think about it, when that space shuttle was taking off, it was sitting on a couple of hundreds of tons of high explosive. Basically think about it, what happened is you are sitting on a couple of hundred of high explosive and letting it off slowly. Mm. What about the Russian Soyuz? Soyuz, the same kind of thing. All, 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 all spacecraft have that similar issue. See the Russian Soyuz when when they when they land the Soyuz they got to go to Kazakhstan to land that thing. Oh, uh, see the Russians uh, had a different philosophy. The Americans mm. tends to land hard and fast. Yeah, and because the Americans had access to a lot of ocean and a big navy, they splashed out. They they had the they had. The, the shuttles or the capsules. Yeah. The capsules, but the shuttles actually landed on a airstrip. The main shuttles actually were a aircraft. Yeah. Of sorts. Uh, but when they landed capsules, the Americans had uh, parachutes on to slow them down, but they let them hit water, which also made them as a break. And then they'd, then they'd have put out float, they'd float. Yeah. Uh, which meant they could land quite hard. Hmm. That lag, you know, several hundred metres a second. Mm. The Russians, on the other hand, uh, used bigger parachutes and went for the soft landing. Yeah, but when the when the Soyuz lands, it it's got like a a, a shock absorber in it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, but they also have relatively slow landings. Yeah, because they tend to parachute around the Earth atmosphere. Yeah, they tend to use. They tend to use. More, they tend to use. They tend. They use. They use bigger parachutes. And see, one of the reasons why they did that was the Russians have a lot more dirt to play with. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, you get out to Eastern Russia, and you've got millions of square kilometers of mm. empty of empty ground. Yeah. Uh. The United States is big, but they don't have those millions of square kilometres of empty ground. Mm. So the Russians have lots of room to play around with. Mm. I guess what you can't be what I did it. Mm. So you look at the Soyuz, it's so small and so cramped up, it takes like oh, three hours to land that thing back to Earth. All, all of these capsules are like this. Well, the, the NASA capsule the, the, was... The whole, the whole thing is, the only large... Well, sorry, the, 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 sorry, the, excuse me. The largest spacecraft was the, uh, was the shuttle. Mm. It was big. Yeah. Uh, 
the Apollo capsule, but the Apollo, not the excursion body, but the Apollo capsules were of a similar order of size to the Soyuz. Mm. The three men sat in shoulder touching shoulder. Mm. Because you make it small to prevent to present the smallest possible burn-up area on re-entry. Mm. Little small, not as much air resistance, can get as hot. Mm. Well, see, when, when the capsule's landing back to Earth, apparently it gets hot inside of that, uh, that you know, aircraft. It, gets hot, it would get hot inside, but not as hot as it could, because what they do is, is they have an outer shell yeah. that actually evaporates and boils off. Yeah. They have a, what's called an ablation shell mm. that actually burns off or boils off. And when something boils off like that, it takes a lot of the heat with it. Mm. You know, it's a, a, a tile-type material that actually, as I say, actually burns off. Mm. Whereas with the space shuttle, it was a glider. Mm. So it came in and it actually had to slow down quite a lot before it hit the atmosphere. Mm. So it did not get nearly as hot, but it did get very hot. That was why it burnt up. And when it landed, it landed fast. So it had needed a very long runway to land on. Yeah, because there's no brakes on a space shuttle. Oh, it had air brakes. But they always have to have a parachute. Yeah, but they also had air brakes on it. They had a parachute with the air brakes. Well, but even a lot of big aircraft had parachutes to break them. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the U-2, I think, had, had a parachute break. Mm. The Blackboard had, Blackboard had a parachute break. See, the U-2 spy plane, um, it takes off just so quick. It was, uh, yeah, it has to, it was designed, again, it is basically a powered glider. Yeah. If you look at its design. And it's designed to have quite a lot of lift for its weight. So it doesn't have, doesn't have to fly hyper-fast. See, you could you it was not the fastest plane. It was far from the fastest plane around that it was flying. The problem that with, was this problem. Yeah, with the U-2 spy plane is the pilot can't land it by himself, has to have someone on the ground. Oh, yes, yes, it needed, it needed uh, because it, it had such a huge wingspan that once it started slowing down, those wings sagged. Yeah. So when it takes off, it had little dollies under the, under, under the wing tips and things like that, yes. You know. But uh, there was a pilot, I think, named Gary. Gary Powell. He got yeah, shot yeah. down from a from a. A, a, a U two, yeah. Now, when you're flying so high on the edge of space, how the hell yeah. did he survive that? Uh, he would have come down in the capsule from memory. Yeah, I oh, didn't jump out and parachute. I don't. I think that actually, but he might. If he did, that's U two uh, pilots, mm. like the Blackbird pilots. Were functionally effective wearing spacesuits anyway. Yeah. They were, they were wearing full pressurized steel suits anyhow. Mm. Uh, because you, 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 yeah, the planes were that you wouldn't pressurize these planes mm. because they'd blow up. Mm-hmm. Uh, because for, but for various reasons, I mean, the, uh, the Blackbird actually leaked. Mm. It was flying at full speed. Mm. So these planes, with the speed, the altitude they were flying at, and all sorts of interesting design things. Mm. 
So he was effectively in a, he was effectively wearing a spacesuit. And I, I, from memory, the year two also had the capsule one. I can't look certain. Mm. But he was flying a hell of a long way up. So who who hit him? Was it the Russians? That... The Russians, yeah. He was flying over the Soviet space, yes. So how did they hit him from that high? They just had a very good anti-aircraft missile. <laughs> See, I want... And that was actually the end of the year two as a spy plane. Oh, okay. See... Uh, they were, and that's, that's why they went into what became the Oscar and then became the Blackbird, mm. which was the first stealth plane. They then built the, uh, the, the, uh, the Blackbird, mm. which was still hold the world's aircraft speed record. See, these uh, missiles... It flew at a similar height, yeah. but twice as fast. Mm. And it flew faster than any missile taking it could go. See these these uh, aircraft missiles. How do they follow the? How do they follow a fighter jet around and around? And it just doesn't uh, right. stop. To follow a fighter jet. Yeah. Most of them. Most of them uh, have infrared detector on them. Yeah. And follow the heat given out by the aircraft. Mm. That's why. If you ever see the picture, one of the news shows on television, you'd have this plane take your frag out sparklers from the back. Mm. Have I seen that image? Mm-hmm. What these were were heated particles, mm. so that any heat-seeking missile wouldn't be able to identify the plane for all the, because of all the other heat floating around. Mm. So, if you're flying a fighter jet, so these fighter jets were often equipped are often equipped with heated charge ejectors. Mm. The other one thing they used to be radar mm. because once they once they got a target, ping, ping, ping. Unless you got a, a, a very stealth a shaped plane, very low radar profile of aircraft, your radar detection, but generally they use heat. Mm. So how does a pilot, like, get away from this if it's just going to keep following? It's... Well, a couple of ways. I said one is you can eject char, heated char, heated material. Yeah. And that can confuse it. Yeah. And two, a plane can fly further than a missile. Yeah. What about higher? Will the will the missile actually... Oh, no, no. As I said, Gary Powers... Yeah. He, he was flying as high as planes were able to fly. Yeah. See, missiles don't worry about height because they're rocket-powered. Mm. Mm. But they do have a fairly fine flying time. So if you can fly long enough... Mm. But once a missile is locked onto you properly, then don't believe what you see on the TV. Mm. Well, that, there there was, was, most chances are you're gone. There was uh, once once they've locked on you. Yeah. You have to be lucky to get away. Yeah. Yeah. No, I wanted to say that because that's a good, that's very clever engineering the U two spy plane, Patrick. How that was I, built. It was a beautiful plane. Now, Gary Powell, when he got shot down, is it true he was interrogated? Oh, thoroughly. I mean, there are all sorts of stories about it. And um, he, he, he became involved in a really a great story about a, a spy exchange of things. Yeah. I've got the book here somewhere. Do <laughs> I haven't f- to read for the last six months. Do uh, fighter pilots get interrogated? Oh, yes. I mean, that, don't forget, he was effectively an enemy spy. Yeah. He, got, he, wasn't, he wasn't flying a fighter plane. He was flying a reconnaissance plane. Yeah. He was taking photographs of them. Mm. 
You see, uh, so he'll take, he'll really take photographs off. Mm. Uh, nowadays, of course, they use satellites for the same purpose. Drones. Oh, that's for, for spy purposes, they use satellites. Oh, okay. Because there are a lot of them around, and, you know, they're, uh, they're quite a long way up. Yeah. Now, it just amazes me, like, like, I still don't get it. Like, you get a U-2 spy plane flying on the edge of space, and it gets hit. It's just, I, I don't get it. I just, As I said, the yeah. Russian, the Soviets had a very good anti-aircraft missile system. Yeah. Uh, it would have been radar, radar controlled, because the U-2 was a very large plane. Mm. And it was the last of the low-profile planes. Mm. Uh, its replacement was the first of the stealth aircraft. Mm-hmm. It's a replacement for the Blackbird in nineteen sixty-seven. It's sixty-three. It's had to fly. Uh, in fact, was a stealth plane. Mm. You know, radar could hardly see it, mm. and, if, and if it flew so damn fast, the radar could see it. Would know what it was anyway. Mm. You see, they they uh, the U two spy plane was painted in black. Yeah. Who? Where's the U two spy plane come from? Is that American or? It's a very, oh, very much a very plain, yes. Yeah. Now it's Gutworks. Remember mm. it? Yeah, it kind of flew out of several aircraft, some of the bases. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so it was just one of those. Actually, they were still flying U twos around the world a few years ago. Yeah. They use them for weather work now. Mm-hmm. Because again, they have this pact of getting way up above the weather mm. and seeing things that you can't see very easy from the ground. Mm. In fact, a U2 landed in Australia in the last 10 years. Wow. You know, so, like the U2, do they, do they have an ejection seat? In as that? I said, I think from memory, I, can't, I think they actually had a, 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 a capsule. Yeah. So I think from memory, it's hard to say. That basically, as with the, uh, yeah, they quite a little, from memory, I can't be sure, don't quote me on this, as I said, but from memory, they had a capsule, in fact, basically the entire cockpit mm. was kind of cut off from the rest of the plane mm. and was landed. So I can't be certain. That is so cool. Yeah. Also, too, the Americans came up with the stealth. Bomber as well. Yeah, well, st- yeah the, stealth, the stealth aircraft, as I said, after the year two, and mm. uh, this was, and that's called 50 years ago, mm. long before we hear about the current stealth generation, they built a plane called the Blackbird. Yeah, yeah. And the Blackbird was painted black mm. simply because it got so hot mm. that, that it had to radiate the heat away. Mm. And it actually was the first aircraft that was designed as a stealth fighter, as a stealth plane. Mm. It wasn't a fighter, it was again a reconnaissance plane. Mm. It was a plane whose job was taking photos. Mm. And it actually was, right, actually it's predecessor, the so-called the Oscars, but they were the first aircraft specifically designed to be very low rope profile on radar, effectively stealth planes. Mm. The idea of stealth aircraft has been around for a hell of a long time. 
the trouble is that when you make a plane with a very low stealth profile, uh, radar profile, it becomes much harder to fly. Mm. It's much harder to control it. Mm. And particularly at the kind of speed that you want for an ordinary fighter aircraft. Mm. So they didn't actually apply that same technology to fighter aircraft until, you know, 20 years ago mm. when they started with the, when they went into the stealth aircraft. Mm. You know, the B-2 and things. Yep. That is so cool. Yeah. That's amazing engineering, that. Yeah. You know, as I said, as I said uh, when I think about the Blackbird, which was, I said, that's the stealth flight, the stealth reconnaissance plane, which took over from the year two. Mm. In a way, it was a fuel tank with engines. Mm. But it burned so much fuel. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the, the U-2, that, that just used to glide. It didn't use any what? fuel. Oh, no, it used, it used fuel. It had a lot of fuel. It burned a lot of fuel because it was flying very high. Yeah. But what it meant was that it had the capacity for gliding. Yeah. But it always flew. It flew. It, it, it had to fly because where it was flying, it needed to push through that very thin air to get the speed up. Mm. So it had to fly twice as fast as it would, and, and had to fly a lot faster than it would be gliding. Mm. But when it was landing, it, effect, it could effectively glide. Yes. Mm. But it, it could it could glide for kilometres. Yes. Mm. But it was that, it's that kind of shape of an aircraft. Oh, it was beautiful. But, you know, very amazing. Yeah. You know, and I wanted, you know, like going back to NASA when um, uh, Neil Armstrong, I think it was Buzz. Aldrin, yeah. And then there was a third one that Michael went. Michael Collins. Michael Collins. Yeah, he didn't go on the moon. He stayed back. He, he was up there. He had to stay in the capsule, yes. Now, they took that, uh, what do they call that thing when they landed on the moon? Uh, the Lunar Excursion Module, the LEM. Yeah, they took like a, a, a moon car or something? Not on that trip. No? No, 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 on that trip they just walked around. Yeah, but you see a, a, a footage one where... Of the, one of the, there, were, there were, what, four or five moon landings. Like yeah. Five. And, uh, I never the exact number, but uh, there were... And, on one of those, they did take four car, yes. What do they do? Do they just leave the car on the moon and go? Everything on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of junk on the moon. They just dump it there and say, ah, piss off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when they left the moon for the first time, mm. they left all their landing gear. Wow. You know, Daddy, Daddy took the, 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 the actual capsule. Mm. How come they yeah, leave they, the, the landing gear there? That they don't take it back to wait. Earth? Think about it. <laughs> no, wait. Yeah. You need the landing gear when to land. Yeah. But you don't need the landing gear on the way back. So mm. why take, why burn all the fuel to lift it off the ground? Well, plus that, they get that, they'd have to quarantine it because space has <laughs> disease too. Well, there aren't any diseases on the moon. Mm. If you think about it, mm. there's not much in the way of the biology of the moon. Yeah. Although, interestingly, uh, they did put Aldrin 
Uh, they didn't put the crew into quarantine when they arrived back. Yep. Which is really rather absurd, but the first thing they did was land them in the ocean anyway. Mm. And also, when they were on the moon, they were in their spacesuits completely. Yep. So they were never actually exposed to the moon surface anyhow. Yeah. But when they took their space suits off, they were then exposed to the outside of their suits. Mm. But nevertheless, the whole capsule was dumped into the water. Mm. So it's all a little bit, you know, a bit iffy. What's so they just dumped the capsule? <laughs> Hike the trail? Check. Order takeout? Check. Schedule heart checkup? Done. We've all adapted to a new way of living. Keep your health care on schedule with Johns Hopkins Medicine, where your health and safety are our highest priorities. We're ready to care for you through virtual and in-person visits across Maryland and the greater Washington region. Your health, our experts, safely caring for you. Schedule your care now. Learn more at hopkinsmedicine.org forward slash safe. Hike the trail? Check. Order takeout? Check. Schedule heart checkup? Done. We've all adapted to a new way of living. Keep your health care on schedule with Johns Hopkins Medicine, where your health and safety are our highest priorities. We're ready to care for you through virtual and in-person visits across Maryland and the greater Washington region. Your health, our experts, safely caring for you. Schedule your care now. Learn more at hopkinsmedicine.org forward slash safe. Well, they landed there because they're very landed in the water. Yeah. So when they land, they, land, they flashed down the Pacific. Mm. And then they picked up by one of the aircraft carriers. Yeah. <laughs> and put into their isolation mm. chamber, which looked like a bus. Mm. I can actually see, it, in my mind, a picture of the isolation chamber they were put into. It looked like a bus. Yeah. But they had to stay for a couple of weeks. Yeah, well, they so, still quarant- they quarantine astronauts before and they go and then after they come well, back. Oh, they quarantined them before. Yeah. Because they don't want them sick on the flight. Did they do that back in the um, moon landing? Probably yes. They they were they, they, actually they were not as much, but certainly. Particular, well, the thing is, particular, uh, the moon landings were very short trips. I mean, they only way for a about a week. Yeah. Uh, if you're going up the space station, you're going up for months. Yeah. You don't want somebody carrying a bug. Oh God, no. Up into an enclosed environment like that. Could you imagine what a case of the trots could do in the space station? Yeah. Uh, so that's why they quarantined them before they got to the space station. Yeah, and they have a reserve person too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because Apollo 11, uh, there was one uh, astronaut, he got the measles, and I think. Was it? I'm not sure about that one. There were, there were all sorts of side stories that I'm not familiar with. Oh, there was a movie with Tom Hanks that could be... Yeah, yeah that, oh, that, 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 that was probably the thing. And uh, they always had, that like, was, a reserve Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that was Apollo 13 when they had that, when that story came around, yeah. And yeah. Uh, things like that. Like I said, there are all sorts of... I mean, they, would, they, would, they, would, they certainly had reserve astronauts and things, yes, because... You might... Although you are a highly coordinated person, mm. drop something on your foot and break a toe. Yeah. You might meet somebody who's got cold and come down with a cold. Yeah, even a mild cold. Anything that could incapacitate you mm. here would make life very miserable. Mm. Because, because one thing those astronaut crews had to be in those days in particular was peak fitness. 
Mm. Well, it's physically hard work. Well, there's no doctor in space. Don't they carry their own <laughs> medical supplies as well? Yeah. <clears throat> well, they carry medical supplies, but then again, medical supplies are carried lots of places. Yeah. But you've got no doctor, you're screwed. So that's why. Well, if you if you did, as my young brother, you go down to Antarctica. Mm. If you go down to Antarctica, he was in summer. But if you go to Antarctica over winter, mm. you are as far from supplies as you are would be if you were in orbit. Yeah. Uh, let's not forget that a hundred years ago, you set sail around the globe. Mm. You could be, well, you sail across the Atlantic Ocean nowadays, Pacific Ocean nowadays. Mm. You, you are three or four or five days away from any kind of human contact. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, nowadays, if it really a push came to shove, they could fly something. There are, there are still places just even on Earth where you're a long way from any kind of contact. Yeah, the, mid- the middle of the Simpson Desert, it can be 600 yeah. kilometres yeah, exactly. away from the nearest hospital. Yeah. yeah. In the outback of Darwin and all that. Yeah. It's for miles, Patrick. You know, but uh, yeah, no, it's um, it's amazing. Like with NASA too, like they're always trying to improve from their last. Well, again, this is what engineers are doing. Engineers yeah, and scientists, <clears throat> because uh, one of the basic tenets of engineering is nobody's perfect. Nothing's perfect. No. So what you do is you try to make things better. Mm. A little tweak here, a little tweak there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes only a little tweak, and sometimes somebody has a complete rethink. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it looks like something that's absolutely brand spanking new mm. has been around forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, quite seriously, from the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. They were working on the engineering of the space shuttle in 1966. Wow. We actually saw, with my own eyes, tests mm-hmm. of models of space shuttles back in the 19, late 1960s. Mm. Because it was being done in Canberra. Mm-hmm. But that whole idea of the so-called lifting body, the idea was already being tested then. Mm. But it still took a long time for it to be, to be developed. Mm. Uh, they still were using the great big mass of Apollo rockets to the Saturn, sorry, Saturn V to lift the uh, moon rockets. Mm. And they were bloody big engines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and the, one, the one that was testing last week also bloody big engines. Mm. No, it's it's interesting engineering. Yeah, um, there's always an art involved with it. I mean, now yeah, we there, there, there's also that there, there is that you do all the mathematics. Yeah, and then somewhere along the line, it has to feel right. Mm. There is that, uh, for with the with the, uh, the Saturn engines. Mm-hmm. 
mm. drives me Apollo, the Apollo Vision, the Saturn Fives. Uh, it took them, you know, just trial and error. Mm. Oh, to yeah. Make, to, make, to make it work properly. But see, you've got a company now called SpaceX with Elon yeah, Musk. That's a, that's that's Elon Musk, Bob, yeah. Now, he's made the capsule much bigger than the old um, NASA oh, capsule. Well, he, he, he is A, putting people into suborbital environment. Yeah. He's throwing people up the edge of space. He is, uh, he has to deliver up the uh, space shuttle. But yeah, well, there are all sorts of worlds and sizes. But it's a trade off. Uh, the bigger the load you carry, the hell lot bigger, bigger your launch machine has to be. Mm. It's something like 70 to 1 ratio. Mm. If for each tonne of payload, you need 70 tonnes of rocket fuel. Mm. Remember it? Yeah. Uh, so if you, if you make your shuttle a little bit bigger, your, your capsule a little bit bigger, your engines have to be that big bigger. Yeah. Although he, he actually, so a lot of what he is doing, uh, but also uh, engines that have improved, the technology has improved again. And he's using next generation, next generation, he's using different fuels and things. Mm. So it's all very, very, as I said, I would, I'm not okay or up to speed on the, uh, the Elon Musk and the SpaceX mm. uh, model. No. I don't look at it at all, so I really can't talk about knowledge. Really. He's trying to get, get astronauts to Mars. Oh, they're talking about it. You reckon we'll get to Mars? The trouble is, is that at the moment it's a one-way trip. Ah, uh, it's not return. Uh, at the moment, because when you think about it, the whole issue is uh, to, to take off from the moon is relatively easy. The moon is small, and so you are relatively light. Mars is a planet. Mm. Uh, come back from Mars would probably take oh, probably something between half and three quarters of the fuel mm. that it would take to get there which means to get there you need to quadruple the amount of stuff you need to take off from here in the first place mm. so almost certainly a Mars mission will be launched from space mm. Because most of the problem in taking off from Earth is that first two first thousand kilometres. Mm. So seriously, most, most, of, most of the problem in getting to the moon is the first thousand kilometres. Mm. Because of the uh, fact that you're, you're lifting yourself and your fuel to get the next thousand kilometres. Yeah. Look, Patrick, I, I hope we can get to Mars one day. Yeah, I cannot see it in my lifetime. Yeah. Like, NASA don't go to the moon anymore. They are actually working on the rocketry to go back to the moon right now. But how come they stopped? Uh, one, of them, one of the things is they, why we went to the moon in the first place. And 
hardly it was a one of those from the Soviets. Mm. You know, to prove that they could do it. Mm. It was an immense project, plus humongous amounts of money. And the amount of science was great, but really not necessarily comparable to the amount of money spent. Mm. Uh, and what happened was there was a shift in the nature of the Cold War in relationship with the Soviet Union. Mm. And you had a shift in the people who were running the country in America. Mm. And they became more business like. Mm -hmm. They couldn't see as much profit in it. Mm -hmm. And because they couldn't see a profit in it, they stopped doing it. You. Yeah. I think that's part of it. Well, you look at, look at Elon Musk. He's completely yeah. redesigned spacesuits that are quite easy well, to move in. Well, his engineers have designed spacesuits, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Because apparently the space, the old space suits, that's you can't move properly in them. Oh, well, there are, again, there have been multiple generations of space suits. Yeah. And they were, again, designed for different purposes, depending entirely what purpose they were designed for. And again, the material science is the materials available at the time. They're what they can make them out of. Mm. These kind of factors have to come into play. Mm. Uh, because the main purpose of the spacesuit is, is to compress your body. So, in fact, the, uh, the pressure suit that pilots wear would work quite well in space. Mm. But the problem is uh, a work around the body would still need to get an adequate a good way of matching it up to your headgear and things like that. Mm. But think about diving outfits. Yeah. I mean, you have the old dry suit with the helmet. Mm-hmm. And then somebody said, hey, do we need to do that? Why, can't, why, why do we need to have the whole body in a, in, in, in a container full of air when we only need to have the air going into the lungs? Mm. So thinking like that, so spacesuits, but equally spacesuits are protected not only against vacuum, mm. but also the fact that uh, even in things like electromagnetic radiation, mm. we have a very thick atmosphere. We have 100, we have 100 kilometres of air. Yeah which stops the sun from burning up to a shrivel. Yeah. So spacesuits also have to do things like protect us from the electromagnetic radiation, things like that. And they also need to provide some mechanical protection against their bumps and scrapes and things. So once again, it's, they're not, it's not a trivial exercise. Yes. It's just anyway, like I said, space, as I said, I, I've never designed a spacesuit in my life. <laughs> you could do uh, it mathematically, you, you probably could. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think it's, it's, it's uh, more calculus than, than algebra. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but 
No, it's just amazing engineering <clears throat> and yeah. mathematical, I don't know, mathematical yeah. equations going into yeah. it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, but the, you know, the whole thing is, you know, is that uh, the joints have to be supported. It's have to be flexible and provide the compression around the joints mm. and the flexibility and things like that all become major issues. So... When when Neil Armstrong or even astronauts when they get out of a space shuttle, how do they get out with without actual I don't know oxygen dying out or something? Well, uh, they, they, they suit up, of course. Yep. And then, then they do have airlocks on them. What's an airlock? Two doors. Yep. You have a door. Yep. You have a small room, and you have another door. Yep. You. Close the outside door. Yep. You open the inside door. You close the inside door. You pump the air out of the inside door back into the out the shuttle or the or the uh, or the capsule. Yeah. You reduce your push down to as much as you can, and then you open the outside door. Yeah. So there's always one door closed. Ah, so yeah, they've got to close one door after the other. Yeah, they close one door, they open the other end. Yes. So what happens and if a, if a space uh, station or, or or the capsule or Soyuz didn't have an airlock? What what would happen? Well, the lunar excursion modelled it. The, the, the LEM didn't. Yeah. So when they landed on the moon, they put their spacesuits on up in the uh, capsule. Yeah. In, in the command module, as they called it. Yeah. Uh, and then boarded the. Uh, the LEM, and uh, went down in that. And then, 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 then they land on the moon, they just open the door. And that's it? Yeah. <laughs> Hello, moon. Again, no, one of the factors is wait. Yeah. Because they're only, they're only down there, you know, from the time measured in hours. Mm. You know, the, the, so basically, uh, the, the spaces tend to be in their suits, you know, for five measured in hours, not days or weeks. Yeah. Because uh, it was about a three-day journey. From yeah, about three days there, three days back. Yeah. Several hours off the surface. So they wouldn't have spent a long time on the moon. Not really. They uh, they landed. Mission Control, this is Tranquility Base. The Eagle has landed. Mm. Although the first thing after was head of the moon was engine stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they had to do certain checks about whether the thing was stable or not. So they hung around for an hour or so, I think, from memory. Mm. Then they opened the door, they wandered around for about an hour or so. Mm. Then they hopped back in, closed the door, pressed the button, and push, back they went. Do you ever do you ever think of the what if they never uh, could press the button to leave the moon? Did, Na- <laughs> did NASA <laughs> NASA ever prepare for the the shit to happen? Uh, I, think. I don't think there were any rescue plans for from the moon. That would have been very scary. Yeah, well, they were right, but all space travel. Mm. All space rockery was scary. Yeah. The scary, the, the, the scary thing 
the, the, the actual landing and the taking off on the moon was sent straight forward, comparatively. Mm. Because they were using small rockets, small motors, because on the moon you don't weigh much. You're only, you're, you're only, you're only pushing mass, you're pushing weights. Mm. Uh, I've done several hundred kilograms at the most, uh, which means they can use small rockets. Mm. And small rockets are not safe than the big ones. Mm. The, uh, the dangerous times for these trips are, uh, well, as in, Apollo, as in Apollo 13, a tiny system failure on the aircraft, on, on the path, mm. throwing them out completely, or taking off when you're sitting on 100 tonnes of high explosive. Mm. <laughs> it's a bit scary now, you think about it. Mm. You're sitting on a bloody great huge bomb and saying, let's go, please go off slowly. Yeah, and, uh, and coming back when you are hitting atmosphere going damn fast, so if you come at the wrong angle, you're going to be cooked. Yeah. See, I truly believe NASA should have prepared for the worst come to worst if that uh, lunar module could not that, take off from the moon. They probably did. But they don't talk about that. See, there's of a lot of things... They don't. They don't talk about that fact that, and I, I don't know. Mm. I would make a small bet mm. that those crew probably had some way of bumping themselves off. Mm. I wouldn't be certain, and it would not surprise me, mm. because we would not want to leave people. Because the trouble is, is there's no way they can mount a rescue expedition. Expedition, mm. because. The lead time, I mean, to, it takes a week for a rocket onto, onto the launch pad anyway. Yeah. So by that time, I'm sorry. So, no, there was no possibility of a rescue. No. But, so, almost certainly, but they would never tell you what it was. Yeah. Because when you think about, when you think all the alternatives, they're horrendous. There's no nice cho- there's no nice alternative. Yeah. They built it. They built it damn strong. They built it very, very simple. That's the other thing. Uh, when they went to the moon, they did not use the most modern machine they had available. Mm. They used older types of thinking. They used older models. Mm. Older model thinking because they knew it worked, but they didn't use the newest computers mm. because the older ones worked and they knew they worked. Mm-hmm. Things like this, and they had multiple failures. They had, you know, a lot of things they had two of. Mm. Things like this. They were. Probably ninety nine point nine nine percent sure they'd get back. Mm. And they did. And they did several times. See before even, they launched. Even, uh, even the ones who weren't going to, even Apollo thirteen got back. Yeah. I think Apollo thirteen had a had a mechanical error in space, got hit hit by an asteroid, and the whole whole um. Something punctured something. Yes. 
Anyway, what I was watching, a, I think, a documentary about the astronauts. They had to put their uh, spacesuit on. They had to turn their whole aircraft yeah, off. They, they kind of flew back in the uh, command module rather than the... Uh, Rather than this, but they're, they're capsule, they're re-entry capsule, I think like this. But, and they suddenly work out, oh, we do have engines, we've got the engines on the excursion module to fly back with. Think like this. They, something they hadn't been planned for happened. Mm. And some very, very quick thinking, and some very, very clever lateral thinking, worked out a way of getting them back. Yep. So it really was really quite a brilliant piece of thinking, quite a brilliant exercise in getting the back. Yeah. So the trouble is with space, if you get in trouble, the manual's in Russian. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the moment, yes. And so... Course, the, Russian, the, Russian, the Russians kept on going up into space and they very stopped. stock. They need to put a manual in English. Uh, well, there are, there are, there are translations. <laughs> But the, but the, the kind of translation box that, that, that says, open box with carefulness. <laughs> you know. No, it was, it's quite interesting, yeah, how they got how they got back. Yeah, like, that one was really quite a... Uh, and the film actually pretty much covered the story, the, uh, what actually happened in terms of the science and the engineering pretty accurately, apparently. Hmm. It really was just one of these quite wonderful exercises in seeing the pads fly. Oh, do we have a tag? Oh, yeah, it's called the Earth. Mm. <laughs> let's just point. Let's just point. Let's just point the aircraft home towards <laughs> home and fly. <laughs> like a video game, just point it. Yeah, point it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, the thing is, on the way back, they had a big target. Mm. Going to the moon had a much smaller target. Not because the moon is smaller, but because they had to actually land in a particular place to be sure they're going to back the safety of things. Mm. Coming back, all they had to do was get themselves roughly over Earth, and thereafter they had they knew how to land the space. They knew how to land the capsule, the, the, the landing capsule, mm. once it got into orbit. Mm. But that was bread and butter. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to mention about the capsule too, because if something malfunction in the capsule, there's no ejection seat. Yeah, well, that's it, but don't forget that once you are a couple hundred kilometres above the ground, I don't think I'd want to eject. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> think about it. <laughs> I mean, the highest parachute jump was what? 10, 15, 20 kilometres. It was done last year, a couple of years ago. Yeah, on the edge of space. Yeah, he was... And the amount of preparation he needed for that. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, the point is, the capsules themselves are your safety gear. Mm. They've got a heat shield on them. Yeah, that's that, that, the ablation shield. That, that is the thing that actually burns off. Oh, Okay. What happens is, is that is designed that as you come back, it actually heats up and it actually evaporates. Yeah. That, that's what, that, that, that red is actually, actually cutting off. Yeah. So, and NASA... Yeah. 
and it's really a basic chemistry from school. Boiling something off, the heat goes off in the steam. Yeah. The, the, the heat actually goes off with what has been burnt off. So, Patrick, NASA uh, apparently don't reuse a capsule. They do they? Well, they can't because they've burnt it off. Well, what about a space shuttle or, or a Soyuz? Oh, no, the, space, the space shuttles are slowed a lot slower. Yeah. But the space shuttle comes in at a narrow angle. Hmm. The, the whole trick of the space shuttle is it has to be flying fast enough for that flying brick, they used to call it, to be able to get enough slip to fly, mm. but not too fast for it to burn. But it's covered with, it, it was covered with ceramic tiles, which were a good insulator. Mm. They're just, no, bustling tiles. Not quite, but yeah, something similar. What about, a, what about a Soyuz? Do they reuse a Soyuz? Quite possibly, because they soft land them. Mm. But equally, I wouldn't know, because I do know that uh, there are quite a few of them floating around. Mm. I mean, there's one in the uh, museum in Sydney. The Powerhouse yeah. Museum in Sydney, the Soyuz capsule is there. That's probably the one you're talking about. It's such a tiny little beast. Oh, God, I don't know how, how, how astronauts can sit in that thing. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that said, that was it. The Russians used slightly smaller rockets than they Yeah. I mean, at, at the time, the, the Saturn V was the biggest rocket around. Yeah. It was the biggest. And then the Russians, since then, have got a lot. Bigger, they're heavily profit. So the current the current generation capsules would be bigger. Mm. That would, would be ruddier. Mm. But again, the same thing. With these units, you make them as small as you can mm. because you're wasting less of your fuel, less of your work in lifting up what is effectively the car can carry it with a payload. Mm. So you don't want the Soyuz, you, you don't want the capsule too big because it was too big. You burn up all that much, all that much extra work to get back into space. Mm. So you make them small quite intentionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that's only my understanding of it. I mean, if, if, if they can devise a different type of fuel source then, or a different way of launching then made the cap- that's what that's actually what was happening with the space shuttle. Mm. But because the space shuttle was a freight train, a freight track. Mm. Uh, it was just bloody big. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, no, nah, Patrick, it was a really good show with you today. Yeah. Great to have you back on. Okay, good hey, good good to see you, good to speak to you again. Whether you're having a not-moving-off-the-couch-while-you-watch-the-game kind of day or a no-time-between-conference-calls kind of day, it can still be a delicious Dunkin' kind of day. And with Dunkin' now available on DoorDash, it's easier than ever to get your faves brought right to your door. So if you're looking for coffees, donuts, and breakfast sandwiches in the morning, craving some afternoon snack and bacon, or in need of Dunkin' refreshers for a PM pick-me-up, we've got you covered. Order now and get your faves brought to your door through Grubhub, Uber Eats, and DoorDash. Price and participation may vary. Exclusions apply. America runs on Dunkin'. Hike the trail? Check. Order takeout? Check. Schedule heart checkup? Done. We've all adapted to a new way of living. Keep your health care on schedule with Johns Hopkins Medicine, where your health and safety are our highest priorities. 
We're ready to care for you through virtual and in-person visits across Maryland and the greater Washington region. Your health, our experts, safely caring for you. Schedule your care now. Learn more at hopkinsmedicine.org forward slash safe.